Welcome to the Dementia Care on Air podcast series. I'm your host, Anna Chodos, the Executive Director of Dementia Care Aware. The goal of this podcast is to bring you short educational moments that will help you detect dementia and care for people living with dementia. And we're especially focused on how we do that in the primary care environment and the real world. We're gonna have a lot of information that mimics what we have on our website and in our other educational modules. But we're also gonna have conversations with experts and other people in the community in the field of dementia care that just help us do a better job in caring for people living with dementia and connecting them and their care partners to the things they need. This is our first podcast, and I'm very pleased to welcome Josette Rivera. Hello, Josette. Hey, Anna. How's it going? Good. Josette, would you be able to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Josette Rivera. I am also a geriatrician at the University of California, San Francisco. My clinical practice is in the UCSF Care at Home program, where I make house calls to homebound older adults in San Francisco. And I'm also very happy to be working on Dementia Care Aware, developing educational materials, such as this podcast, webinars, and online modules. Josette, I think it's fair to say we could not do this without you. You are the mastermind of much of our educational materials. And so I'm very glad that you're here today to talk to us about and talk with me about the cognitive health assessment, which is really the cornerstone of this program. I'll say a couple words quickly about Dementia Careware in general. It's a statewide California program. We are here to promote across the state the opportunity to do earlier detection and better care for people living with dementia. And we really start with a cognitive health assessment because that's, for most of us in primary care, that is where we learn that someone is having issues and how do we proceed from there. That's what our whole program is about. So if you look at our website, DementiaCareAware.org, we have information on how to detect dementia, how to care for people with dementia. A really, really important piece of this is connecting people to resources in the community that can help support them on top of the medical work that you're going to be doing if you're a healthcare provider or someone on the, the primary care team. So these podcasts, we're really excited to launch because we want people to have more opportunities to learn what we're putting out there. Um, we know that online modules or webinars or echo trainings, we have a lot of echo virtual case conference opportunities as well. Some of those things aren't going to be accessible because of time or other constraints. So this is just one more way we want to get information to folks. We are also offering um, continuing education credits and maintenance of certification. So we hope you'll take advantage of that as well. Okay, now that we have some of the logistics out of the way, I think I'd love to talk with you, Josette, about the cognitive health assessment. And first, if you don't mind, can you just say briefly what you think we want people to get out of this brief podcast? I think we would love for people to uh, learn about what the cognitive health assessment is, why busy primary care providers should make time to do it, and then... uh, And I think that's mainly it, just introducing it, giving familiarity and really making a a case for why, why to do it. Awesome. Yeah. And we know a lot of questions are going to come up. So if I do this assessment, what do I do next? What about this in that case of, you know, my patient 
um, needing a special accommodation, or I'm not sure if the way this health assessment is structured fits with my patient who may be experiencing homelessness. Lots of issues come up. We know about all those and we have additional materials and we're going to have more podcasts on that information and that's sort of the nooks and crannies of this issue. However, we want to just start with the basics, like what is a cognitive health assessment? How do you do it? And we can really build from there. I think on top of that, one of the things that's in the training, so we have this online module, seat time is in between 60 and 90 minutes, meaning if you start the online training, which you can start and stop at any time, you might be in there for for a little bit learning all the material. Uh, This is obviously a lot shorter, but I just want to briefly mention some of the stuff that's in there because it gives good background. The first is really what is dementia? We sort of need to know what dementia is to know why we're structuring the cognitive health assessment in a certain way and why we're looking for the things we're looking for. The thing we mentioned in the training is that dementia is a syndrome and it's a syndrome of progressive cognitive decline and progressive functional decline that you've ruled out other medical and psychiatric causes. It's in the DSM. That's how we get the diagnosis. And that's not the same thing as what's causing it. So we know we need to do next steps evaluation if we suspect that this person has dementia syndrome, they're meeting these criteria of progressive cognitive decline and progressive functional decline. But the diseases that cause them are many. We sort of talk about it as a bucket, right? Dementia is a bucket. It's a label on that bucket that says this person fits in here because they have these declines. Um, But what's actually causing it is a whole other step, really, and a whole other process. The most common cause is Alzheimer's disease. Next most common is vascular disease. And after that, some things that seem uncommon, because maybe we don't see them that much, but are in the population as common as 10 to 20%, things like dementia with Lewy bodies, frontal temporal dementia. So just trying to keep in mind that someone may have dementia syndrome, and then as we go along, we're going to kind of try to help guide you as to how you would figure out, if you can figure out what might be causing it, and how to triangulate that that information. Um, but often we can be more comfortable labeling people with dementia because we can identify that syndrome, then I think we think a lot of primary care teams and providers feel comfortable doing right now. Because um, in fairness, this is a really complicated area. The brain is complicated. The symptoms are often complicated. And so I think that's another big goal of our program and things like introducing the cognitive health assessment, which is trying to simplify things a little bit and just stay grounded in the fact that we're looking for these evidence of cognitive decline and functional decline. And there we can build a diagnosis, at least, of dementia syndrome. So where would you say the cognitive health assessment fits into this entire process you've outlined? Like, where does that start in this detecting dementia or detecting cognitive decline? How would you situate the cognitive health assessment in this entire process? Because it sounds like it's a process. Thank you, Josette, always bringing me back to earth. Yes, the cognitive health assessment is that first step. We are recommending the cognitive health assessment as an annual screen, basically. We know there aren't strong USPSTF recommendations or other health organization recommendations to do annual screens, but we're at a point with population aging, with increased vulnerability among many populations, especially in California that are aging, that detecting dementia is going to be key 
because it's just going to get more and more prevalent. We're going to have more and more people with dementia. Well, I guess we're at the point where we could start talking about what is in the cognitive health assessment. So Josette, what is the cognitive health assessment? It's three parts and these are not in sequential order. Um, One is take a brief patient history. Another is use a screening tool. Um, And we advocate using a screening tool for both cognitive and functional status. And finally, documenting a care partner or lack thereof. So I'd like to spend a moment talking about taking a brief patient history because that information can come from a variety of sources. For some clinics, there may be, uh, especially those serving Medi-Cal patients, um, there may be annual survey questions that are already in use, such as the Medi-Cal Staying Healthy Survey, or for those who also have Medicare, the annual wellness visit. There are annual questions there that are asking about cognitive decline. Other sources of information may be from um, the patient themselves or their care partner, just spontaneously mentioning, noticing a change in their cognition or function. Some uh, other people that might also notice changes are people in your own clinical environment, members of your healthcare team. So as an example, um, your front desk person might be noticing that this person is confusing their appointment times or um, coming, you know, coming at the wrong time or, or no showing on their appointments. So there are multiple sources that can combine to give you um, useful patient history information. In terms of the screening tools, um, in the online training module, we go through and list a number of cognitive and functional screening tools, and maybe we could just cover them briefly here, Anna, just to give people a sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are going to be more familiar with the cognitive screening tools or in thinking about that as, oh, this is what I do for a dementia screen. And one of the most common is the mini cog. So we recommend that as one tool you could do for a patient. And that's a three item recall and a clock draw. Uh, And it's, you know, downloadable in a PDF format. We have that on our site. The other tool we have and recommend is something called a GPCOG, general practitioners, the GP part of it. This is actually a screen developed in Australia, but it's basically a mini cog with a couple extra questions. And instead of a three item recall, meaning you read words to someone, they repeat it, and then you ask them to recall it later, you actually do a person's name and address and ask them to recall that later. And the GP cog is nice in a way that some of the other tools aren't that we recommend because the second page is actually asking for functional information from an informant. You can also give it to the person, but it's meant to be from an informant to add that additional information for, for from uh, someone else who might have a different perspective uh, or more insight than the person, than the patient themselves. And, um, This really emphasized something that we've done with this cognitive health assessment and are trying to emphasize, which is you want to get information on cognition and function, and depending on the situation, if you can, from a patient and an informant. So the main cognitive tools that we recommend for the patient are the mini-cog and the GP-cog. Josette, do you think there's more to say about those? 
No, I think you've covered it nicely. And I guess one thing I would add about all of the tools that we are recommending for use is that we are recommending them because they've been validated in primary care settings. They're free to use. Um, they're easily accessible online as well as in our training modules on our website. And each of them take less than five minutes. And they come in multiple languages for the most part. Good point. Yes. Um, the other option too, though, is we give options for tools that you can give an informant. So if someone comes with a person, they could be doing a survey while you're doing other things with the patient. And the two items there are the 88AD-8 and the short IQ code. Those are the surveys that you can give to an informant to give you information about the patient's cognition. So I think some clinics that we've talked to have been really interested in doing that because it's a little bit of a time saver if they can give a survey to an informant. So then there's the other piece, the other piece of the tools, which is how do we assess function and screen for functional decline? For the patient, we really are recommending something pretty simple, which is an ADL, Activities of Daily Living, an IADL, Instrumental, activity instrumental Activities of Daily Living, checklist. So going through with the patient or if they can read and do it on their own, um, giving them the checklist and finding out if they're needing any assistance with activities of daily living or instrumental activities of daily living. And I'm sure many of you know this, but if you don't know what those are, instrumental activities of daily living are things that most of us need to be independent in the community, like shopping, doing bills, and um, doing higher higher level activities, I would say, like house cleaning, preparing food. The ADLs are more basic activities of daily living, like dressing and bathing and transferring. The other thing you could do, though, is have the informant give you information about their function. And as I already mentioned, the GPCOG has that second page where an informant would give you some brief information about the patient's function. And then we have another survey that you could give an informant that's just asking about function. It's called the, the FAQ. So once again, Josette, I'll make sure that you catch me if I've missed anything about the tools. No, I think you've, you've covered it well, which I think brings us to the, uh, the final part, the third part, which is the care partner. Um, so we strongly recommend documenting any information you can about a care partner. And by care partner, I mean anyone who knows the person well enough to be able to describe or notice or report any changes, if there are any, in their cognition or their functional status. Um, it could also be somebody who's involved in this person's care, whether that is medical or healthcare, or whether it is doing the activities of daily living or instrumental activity, uh, instrumental activities of daily living that Anna just listed. Um, these are people who know uh, the patient well enough to talk about changes and also may or may not or, you know, be involved in their care to some extent. Um, and I will also add on to this um, a healthcare agent. So a healthcare agent is a legal designation of someone who has legal authority to make decisions on a person's behalf if they cannot make decisions for themselves. It's a very important thing. Um, many people do not have one, but in this cognitive health assessment, we are 
strongly recommending that you document the contact information and name of the person's care partner and their healthcare agent if they have one. They may be the same or they may be different people or the person may not have any kind of care partner or healthcare agent. And regardless, it's important to acknowledge and document that because that absolutely will play a role later on down the line in terms of um, assessing needs and connecting people with resources. Josette, that was perfect. I think that was really nice the way you said that um, and pointed out why we're asking people to check in about who's a care partner, caregiver. One of the reasons we say things like support person or care partner is that sometimes if we ask people if they're a caregiver, if they have a caregiver, they don't really identify with that term or they don't really see themselves as having a caregiver or you know, someone who's helping out may not identify that way. And so if you ask it, they just say no. So that's why we ask more, you know, do you have someone who helps support you around medical care or someone who helps support you with activities during the week, like getting groceries? And that is just gets a little more concrete about what the the roles are. Um, and I think some of the way you outlined it and some of what you said really helped to remind me that I want to mention that the reason we put all these elements in the cognitive health assessment is because these are the elements that are going to carry you through diagnosis and care planning for someone. So knowing what their cognition is, knowing what their function is, knowing who's in their life and is supporting them, and even perhaps more importantly, knowing if there really isn't someone who they're relying on or talk to regularly or can help them do certain things, all of those are going to be really helpful in ultimately getting deeper on each of those topics and knowing what's really going on with that person and then making that care plan. So in my mind, when I'm thinking, okay, am I detecting, am I diagnosing, and am I caring for somebody who may be living with dementia or now I feel comfortable saying they are living with dementia, they have dementia, um, I, I literally see three pillars in my mind and one says cognition, one says function, one says support system. And I just keep coming back to those things in my diagnostic and care planning with that person, that that whole process. So I really liked the way you emphasized how we think about informants and healthcare agents. And it's also a good plug for the fact that we're developing a ton of materials with medical legal experts and in older adults in terms of educational topics and resources uh, across the state of California. So really encourage you to keep coming back to our website and materials to check that stuff out as well, because many of us know that the legal aspects, the practical aspects of life get really complicated when someone has dementia. And so I know one of our goals with Dementia Care Aware, this whole program, was to support primary care and helping patients get connected to the right resources in, in that area. Thanks, Josette. You as always, spoke so clearly and cogently on that topic. But I think now we're at a tricky spot. We have to talk about how we interpret the cognitive health assessment after we've done it and if it's positive or negative. And it's tricky, right? So to briefly recap the parts again of the cognitive health assessment, it's um, taking a brief patient history using a cognitive and functional screening tools, either from the patient or an informant or both, 
And finally, gathering information on a, a care partner or and or healthcare agent. So with that in mind, how do we interpret this as positive or negative? Because it's it's a uh, it's an assessment with these three parts, but how do we know whether we should move forward in the process? Yeah, exactly. So basically, we know that knowing if there's a care partner is really important, but we're not using that to interpret if the cognitive health assessment is positive and meaning indicate it's positive. We want to say, okay, that means I need to follow up on this and do go further in the diagnostic assessment. We are saying though that the history and the tools are important here. So if the tool, if the person's endorsing symptoms or someone in their life is endorsing symptoms or you, the primary care provider, notice something, noticing something, that's a positive sign. If they're not, and then you go on to the tools and there's something on the cognitive tool that you check and the functional tools that you do that suggests there's decline, that would also say that they're positive. And as a composite, we'll use that to move forward. So one thing you and I have discussed a lot, Josette, is what happens if someone endorses symptoms? Okay, I'm forgetting stuff, I'm losing stuff. Um, or you're noticing that they're having a really, really hard time with medication management and they didn't before. And then you do the tools and they're normal or sort of borderline normal. So like if you just did the tools themselves, you wouldn't have said, okay, that person is has a positive CHA, we're recommending that you would still proceed to next level diagnostic evaluation because something's going on. And with the next steps in the evaluation, you can feel a little more comfortable that you've looked at everything and can say, okay, I really know more about how they're doing and where they're at and what the right next steps are. Often the next steps in the diagnostic evaluation are not urgent. You know, we can piece these out over time. And that's what we're really going to talk about in all the modules and podcasts and webinars on next steps and evaluation. But we do want to catch that signal when the patient or an informant is telling us something that's just a symptom or sign. And those screening tools are still negative because unfortunately our screening tools are pretty brief. They're not totally complete. And a lot of our patients, especially from different educational backgrounds, cultures, may may not show up on certain tools, but symptomatically they're showing us something or they're telling us something. So we can't pretend this is a heavily rigorously studied approach, but we came to consensus with the best minds in the state that this is a good way to proceed to make sure that we're doing better and earlier detection for dementia. And probably a lot of other things like depression and other causes for some cognitive symptoms. So we want to do deeper dives um, and consider the cognitive health assessment positive if symptoms or tools are positive. And then the care partner information is just really, really useful, crucial information that we need to help work with and care for our patients. Yeah, thank you so much for breaking it down in that way and in a really practical way. I mean, I know that our neurology colleagues have reminded us that, as you mentioned, tools can perform differently in different uh, patient populations, different demographics, and we don't want to rely exclusively on a screening tool to detect cognitive decline. And in those cases, the history can be very important. And as you mentioned, a signal 
to move forward in, in, in looking more closely and doing a deeper dive, even if the tools are negative. So I think that's a really important point to highlight. Okay, phew. We passed the Josette checkpoint. <laughs> I think we should move on. We need to wrap up. We've gone deep into the cognitive health assessment. And I think the next almost clerical items are how we document and bill. And we have a lot of information on our website to help guide you if you have a dual eligible patient that has Medicare and Medi-Cal, if you have a patient who's just on Medi-Cal, if you have a patient who just has Medicare, how you might bill for the cognitive health assessment. There are codes you can use for both. And mostly you'd want to document, especially if you have a Medi-Cal only patient, you'd want to document certain things, um, what tools you use, how you interpret it, that you disclose to the patient. And we have a, a quick sheet on that as well. So just want to encourage you to go look at that instead of uh, reciting it to you today. Yes, I and do want to highlight that we're going to have a handout or a cheat sheet, if you will, that's downloadable from our website on what is required if you uh, do wish to use the special billing code for cognitive screening for Medi-Cal patients only. Awesome. And then, so big, big picture here, we're going to detect earlier by doing this annual screen on older adults, 65 and older, who don't already have dementia. So you can probably skip those patients. Uh, you're going to document and hopefully bill for your service and your time. You might be able to get other team members, including the care partner, to help you do parts of the cognitive health assessment. It's really the billing provider that needs to pull it all together in one visit, um, even though some of that information may have been gathered at other visits. And then if it's positive, if there's a symptom or a positive finding on one of the tools, we recommend you know making a note and planning for follow-up with that patient to do more assessment. I'll just add, too, that um, a common and understandable concern of many busy primary care teams is time. Time is a shared challenge and a barrier to accomplishing some of these things. And a couple of ways that might help get around that is to consider who on your team might be able to do different parts of this cognitive health assessment and incorporate that into your workflows so it's not only the provider doing all three parts. Another suggestion is to consider that you don't have to do the entire cognitive health assessment in one visit. You can do different pieces spread across visits. And then um, if you are using the billing code, uh, bill that code when you document um, the provider's interpretation of the cognitive screen. So whenever that happens is when you can bill for that. Just a couple of quick suggestions on how you might actually do this in real life. Josette, I'm so grateful you brought us back to doing this in real life. I really, those are great tips. I think they're fabulous. We really want to encourage people to think about how they could do this in a busy day and get at least some pieces of it done. And the other thing that I think is also really achievable that we highlight in the training and I want to leave us with is if someone is having symptoms or a positive screen, it's also a great time to start what we call brain health care plan. Brain health is actually really doable. It's something very active we can do for patients who are having symptoms or cognitive decline, functional decline, and really makes a difference. And at the end of the day, it's actually often the main parts of the care plan if someone has a diagnosis of dementia, regardless of what's causing it, regardless if they have dementia with Lewy bodies or vascular disease. So what is brain health? Brain health is correcting hearing and vision, 
everyone knows this is my pet peeve, hearing loss in middle age is the strongest modifiable risk factor we have for dementia. So correcting hearing is super duper important, correcting vision, encouraging social and physical activity, doing our patients a favor by looking over and reviewing any medications that may have cognitive side effects and trying to minimize or get rid of those, and then controlling blood pressure and diabetes, which helps long-term with brain health and slowing decline. So even at the screening moment, we're encouraging people to think about and get into order sets, you know, brain health maneuvers. Um, So I think we're going to wrap up there, Josette. This was really helpful. You're such a clear thinker. You have a beautiful brain and you articulated it so well, how we've thought about doing the cognitive health assessment and how we're hoping that this can be a practical tool for an annual assessment for our older patients. And next up, we're going to have more podcasts and information about what you would do with a positive cognitive health assessment. Of course, the negative uh, cognitive health assessment, we're hoping people will get reassessed annually. So I think we can close it out there. And I just want to say thank you so much, Josette. Thank you, Anna. It's been really fun as always. And I'm looking forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening and to our wonderful guests. And a big thank you to our administrator and everything doer, Rita Archikova. Also, thank you to our audio editor and voice specialist, Lisa Costello. And we want to make sure you know you can get CE, CME, and MOC credits if you go to our website and click through to the podcast page, where you can do a quick quiz to claim credit. This is all possible through support from the California Department of Healthcare Services and the hard work of the Dementia Careware team. If you want to learn more, please visit our website, DementiaCareware.org.